Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the New Books and Gender Studies podcast. Uh, my name is Kyle McMillan. Today I'm here with Dr. Ellen Mayock. Uh, she is the Ernest Williams II Professor of Spanish within the Department of Romance Languages at Washington and Lee University. Dr. Mayock, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks very much. How are you? Good. Uh, So we are here to talk about your new book, uh, Gender Shrapnel in the Academic Workplace, published in 2016 by Pelgrave Macmillan. And just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about your academic background and what kind of inspired you or led you down the path to write Gender Shrapnel? Sure. Uh, My academic background is in uh, Hispanic literature, so that's what my PhD is in from University of Texas at Austin, and I did my master's um, in Spanish through Middlebury College in Madrid, Spain. So probably when you hear that and you know that I teach in our Romance Languages Department at Washington and Lee and also in Latin American and Caribbean studies, you wonder where the gender piece comes in. Uh, basically, it was the case in my undergraduate experience that I don't even recall um, ever seeing on the books, now this is 30 years ago, ever seeing on the books uh, a women's and gender studies class or an introduction to women's and gender studies and feminist theory. I also don't know if I was looking for those courses, but I certainly they were not sort of commonly um, available. And when I got to um, to Austin to do the PhD, um, I knew that I wanted to write my dissertation on um, basically the female protagonist in uh, 20th century Spanish literature. And I therefore knew that my preparation in women's and gender studies was, you know, woefully lacking. And so it was at that time that I started taking really auditing classes at UT Austin to get myself up to speed and also asking people what their reading lists were and just reading tons of books on my own. Um, And I kind of call myself a, you know, cottage industry or autodidact uh, women's and gender studies scholar just because of what I had to do to be able to um, sort of intelligently write my dissertation and, and have it flow in a scholarly way so that I was up on all the literature. And so, um, but that's not, I think that is not very unusual for um, people of my age who uh, write about gender studies. I think a lot of us came up that way. And um, so, so really, we were pleased at my institution when we finally hired somebody who actually had a degree in women's and gender studies because we thought it gave it uh, our whole program more legitimacy. So that's so really my dissertation was focused on the way that women authors um, frame questions of space, um, access, 
ambition and accomplishment for their women characters. And um, so probably those types of things that I'm talking about, you can see come out in uh, gender shrapnel in a lot of ways. Um, so if it makes sense, if you'd like me to, I can now talk a little more specifically about how I got to, to this book. Yeah. Um, let's see. In 2010, a colleague uh, from my institution and I co-edited a volume called Feminist Activism in Academia. And basically, we had been observing uh, on the sort of local, regional, national, and international scenes, what had been going on in the academy and what, what types of questions we were asking about um, gender dynamics in um, educational settings. And so we ended up co-editing this volume that was really interesting um, because in many ways it addressed questions of um, uh, equality for LGBTQ individuals, equality, some, some questions of hegemonic masculinities, um, questions of um, political platforms and how they manifest on um, college and university campuses, how that becomes sort of a flashpoint or a lightning rod for, for universities and, and how um, sometimes universities are circling the wagons to protect the message. And um, it ended up being just a really interesting scholarly exercise for us to co-edit that volume. The co-editor is Dominika Radulescu. Um, and at the same time that we were co-editing that volume, I was already sort of thinking about this metaphor of gender shrapnel. And I was doing just some creative writing, um, some uh, nonfiction essays about the concept. Uh, and then really in earnest in 2011 and 12, when I was on sabbatical leave, started collecting stories, <clears throat> uh, writing the narratives, doing tons and tons of research, and then trying to figure out what a sort of practical platform or outcome of this research could be. And that's how Gender Shrapnel was born. Okay. So I guess a good place to start then for those who haven't read the book is what do you mean when you say gender shrapnel? What kind of led you to use that terminology? On a personal note, I had been serving as associate dean at our institution. I did that for two years. And I think the term came to me during the second year I was serving in that role because I basically was noticing because my role had so much to do with gender that when uneven gender dynamics occur, um, it almost sometimes feels like you were hit by shrapnel and you don't know exactly where it came from or why. And you watch other people get hit by shrapnel. And it sort of, there are these little scattered pieces that get lodged and don't get removed. And that that's neither good for the individual nor for the organization itself and for getting the work done. And so, so basically I just kept thinking about um, that metaphor of gender shrapnel, uh, kind of uneven dynamics, small workplace explosions that occur, um, how this happens intersectionally, so how um, these little bits of shrapnel can be more acute if you exist at the intersection of, say, gender with race or gender with sexuality or gender with parental status. And so basically that, that is the central metaphor of, of the book. 
Yeah, and I thought it was interesting how using shrapnel kind of links it linguistically with violence, you know, and kind of describing yeah. that phenomenon as a violent one. Exactly. So I, I love that you're bringing that up because um, with the publication of Gender Shrapnel, I have found that I haven't yet um, uh, tired of the question of of violence and how that relates to the way we all interact. And in fact, right now I'm working on a separate paper on silence and violence. And I guess I I think you're right that this sort of, first of all, it has a military feel, right? Shrapnel, it um, has this violent feel to it. And it also has this silent feel because you don't know where those scattered bits came from. So there's a mystery or a mystique to it. And I think that that's really important in terms of two central concepts of gender shrapnel. One being that I insist on the fact that sexual discrimination, harassment, and retaliation are on a continuum with sexual assault and sexual violence, which we know have been uh, so such important issues on university and college campuses, and of course also um, secondary and middle school education um, locations. And then the other the other piece of that is that I, I have been looking at how when we silence people, we're um, in a way affecting some form of violence on their physical bodies, that there are all sorts of effects that the body will then manifest, um, all sorts of harms that the body will show when, when it has been silenced. And there's a whole, I, I list those in chapter six and seven of, of the book. Right. So uh, I'm interested in kind of if, you want to go into how does gender shrapnel affect academia, you know, not only the people within it, but kind of as an institution, because you talk a lot about uh, how gender shrapnel is a very institutional phenomenon. So I was wondering if you want to get into that a little bit. Right. I think um, one of the, one of the really important pieces of gender shrapnel particularly in, in its structure, the structure of the book, is I start off really talking about narratives of gender shrapnel. So that goes to, from that, you know, what are the individual stories that when taken together equal some kind of a phenomenon that is affecting the institution? <clears throat> and so I think that what I'm trying to say in that first section is that stories really matter, that we need to hear from the people who have experienced this. And in fact, I list the stages of experiencing gender shrapnel um, I think I forget now if that's at the end of, I think it's at the end of chapter three. Um, and then for the institution, I, I think we can speak pretty generally and that this, this generalization is a fair one. When we look at the, the sort of state of higher education in the United States and in many cases beyond the United States, um, and we think about how it's interacting with our U.S. legal system. And so basically, our, our legal system, I think, is not designed, especially for civil cases, for um, addressing real change in uh, colleges and universities. So let's say an individual or better yet, a group of individuals says, this isn't fair, we are going to the EEOC and we want to affect change through the, affect change at our institutions through the legal system. The legal system is going to define um, this in terms of a complaint, which I think is uh, sort of dripping in rhetorical negativity. 
Um, maybe we'll use terms like damages and thin-skinned plaintiffs. Again, making um, the person who's experienced sexual discrimination or sexual violence feel like less of a person. And then the legal system is set is set up mostly so that the university can feel protected and protect itself from risk, which often means that those who have experienced um, these types of um, sexual dynamics are silenced. Um, sometimes they're offered money to be silenced. Uh, sometimes it's just too long a process where you're not going to decide to take five years of your life to try to have your, your institution change. And so I, I do think that the, the negative effect is that you have workers who, um, in the end, are less full individuals um, laboring in the institutional setting. And I would think in terms of organizational management, that is the last thing you want. <laughs> you want all of your employees and your students, more importantly, if we are thinking about it on a continuum, um, to be fully functioning um, uh, flourishing individuals who are sort of um, uh, making the mission statements, these really lofty mission statements of our colleges and universities true instead of um, sort of increasing hypocrisy. So I guess that the way I put it in a nutshell is we want our, we want the institutional impact to be a positive one. We want to affect positive change so that individuals and institutions can um, not be afraid of change and can move forward together, even if still recognizing different platforms or um, different types of diversity. Right. So you talked uh, about how you used uh, early in the book, the narratives, the different stories from uh, the people who have experienced gender shrapnel. So I found that mm -hmm. as a reader to be a very powerful uh, chapter. Uh, it kind of, uh, because you talk a lot throughout the book about kind of institutional machinations and like how mm -hmm. uh, institutions deal with uh, harassment. But this kind of really, you know, brings it home. You kind of put a face to the phenomenon, if you will. So right. just a couple of questions about the narrative. So um you, why did you decide that you, or you wanted to include these narratives and uh, which did you find most powerful? Was there one that kind of you heard and you were thinking to yourself, oh, I have to add more of these to my book? Mm -hmm. First, I would say that part of part of the theoretical base of this is that I have been thinking about how we have changed the way we um, tell and hear stories in many ways because of the internet, right? Because of Facebook and Twitter, all types of social media. Um, we're very invested in personal stories. That's, it's sort of, we're sort of dripping in personal stories and we must, this must mean that we are interested in them and that in some way they speak to us viscerally and so I really wanted to acknowledge that. And when I read Claire Hemming's book called Why Stories Matter, which is from Duke University Press, um, I, it, was, it allowed me to think more theoretically about what's happening in terms of stories, what stories work, which stories don't, how we repeat certain narratives or privilege certain narratives over others. And so, sometimes those narratives, again, really are narratives of privilege and we're not hearing all the voices we could be hearing. And so part of that first section of gender shrapnel is to say, let's hear 
um, let's hear some of the stories. So what I did was, that, as you know, in the first chapter, I told very briefly what my own story was with gender dynamics at my own institution as a way to say, okay, I'll tell my story. And then in the subsequent chapters, I interweave my own story. So you'll hear chapter two is called Back When I Wasn't a Feminist, right? So I'm talking about how I sort of came to uh, awareness or consciousness. And then in chapter three, what I do is just create composite narratives from um, people I've observed, from national stories that I've read about, from individuals who've come to me and told me their stories after I've presented at conferences, and I just basically made composite narratives out of those. I think one of the ones that um, is really an interesting one because it focuses on a student and a lot of the narratives that focus on employees. And remember, when we're talking about colleges and universities, in many cases, we're talking about employees who have very long-term relationships with the institution. And so in that sense, I also think it's really important to be thinking about remedies and change because these people, in many cases, are not going to be leaving. Um, and But the one, I, one story that I tell um, is about a young woman who writes a poem that is um, probably supposed to be included in a celebration at the institution. And uh, the young student is um, African-American. And the poem really is about sort of a coming to terms with her own and others' perceptions of herself in her body. And um, the story unfolds whereby um, a student affairs dean is trying to kind of uh, go to the mat to defend the poem and have it included as part of the celebration, but the poem is just um, shut down. And so the student um, sees all of this happening and sort of um, almost too soon has to come to terms with what gender shrapnel is. So that's one of the stories that I find very sort of um, poignant in, in that chapter three. Yeah, I would say for me, uh, that was up there with one of the most powerful narratives, uh, just because being a graduate student myself, you know, thinking about the different power dynamics that you talk about, the different hierarchies, you know, a graduate student right. is pretty low <laughs> in those hierarchies. You're right. So right. Yeah. I, I was wondering if you wanted to kind of speak more about you know, if you had a graduate student read Gender Shrapnel, um, what kind of, uh, I guess, lessons would you want them to uh, kind of absorb or what, did, what do you want them to find out about kind of their future in academia? Right. Uh, I guess, you know, in part, this book really is for graduate students <laughs> um, to say, for you know, it has that really instructional piece, um, which is section sections three and four are really designed for um, the classroom and for people to be thinking very deliberately about um, this setting and how change can be affected. Um, I, I'm going to backtrack for a second and first just talk about the undergraduate population and then I'll get to graduate students. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I've taught, as have many of my colleagues in women's gender and sexuality studies at my institution, I've, I've taught our intro course a number of times. And one of the things when you teach an intro course on um, gender studies and feminist theories, and now, of course, also queer theories, um, there's a certain moment in the semester where you realize that your students are just 
beaten down by the sadness of it all. <laughs> They're, they've come to awareness. They uh, have experienced frustration. They've experienced anger. And then they sort of throw up their heads and are like, oh, my gosh, there's so much to be done. What can be done? Right. And so I always find that there's a certain point in the semester where I say, of course, all of this exists, but, you know, we still we still need to live in our worlds and we need to live with a critical eye, but also find happiness. Right. So I think we're constantly seeking some kind of uh, balance between um, a great sense of critical analysis and also an ability to live happily in the world. And so I think that affects our undergraduate students. Uh, deeply. I think for graduate students, many of them have already experienced what I just told and are really, they have all these um, critical tools available, high level of analysis. And I think graduate students today um, also have more tools than I have that I basically have to keep developing, right? So like I, I really still need um, more tools on queer theory, the ways in which queer theories are informing feminist theories, um, I need a, a, a higher developed sense of intersectionality that doesn't just come from my own positionality. And I think our current graduate students are uniquely positioned to be affecting real change in broader ways. Um, and that that is fabulous. And that, that's a really positive point that graduate students can take. So then when they have, gra- when they have gender shrapnel in their hands, what they can be saying is, okay, I understand what the stages are. I understand how this can affect individuals and maybe not me, right? I can put myself in someone else's place and get why this is wrong. And I think for graduate students, um, that awareness, the sort of um, theoretical toolkit, and uh, maybe, and I, you could speak to this better than I, <clears throat> we don't. We, we have law students at my institution, but not graduate students in other programs. But maybe also a greater sense of how activism can work, um, both on campus and off campus. What social media you can use, um, ways in which you can affect change. So, I'll give an example. Um, there's been so much in the news about uh, sexual harassment happening by um, older philosophy professors on. Um, philosophy graduate students, right? And that some institutions have actually removed those philosophy professors, but without telling the institutions that then hire them, that the reasons for which they remove them. And so basically, you're just moving the problem away from your institution into another institution. And this, we've been able to see in the Chronicle of Higher Education, inside higher ed, on social media, on Facebook, there, there have been very um, vocal protests against this kind of move. Um, and I think this, these are the kinds of things that current graduate students have at their disposal to affect real change. So for me, I want gender shrapnel to be another tool in that toolkit where um, there's a real awareness about um, what these processes are, the dangers of institutional concealment, the possibilities of coalition building and use of social media, the ways in which graduate students can work with sympathetic professors and administrators to affect change in their own institutions without fear of reprisals in terms of letters of recommendation, in terms of their own futures for getting hired and um, surviving in the academy. Does that answer your question thoroughly enough? Oh, yeah. Um, I think a lot of uh, the things you brought up in your answer, though, kind of ties in nicely to 
you called it in gender shrapnel the cycle of harassment. So do you mm-hmm, want to go into right. kind of what perpetuates the cycle? What goes into it and how is it, you know, maintained? Right. Uh, that's, that's chapter six of gender shrapnel. And it, when I was writing the first draft of the manuscript, I think it was the chapter I was most nervous about because it is, it has the most sort of, um, legal information and information about legal history, uh, which of course that is not my area of expertise. So I had to, uh, develop some of that and then actually have, uh, lawyer, scholars, and friends read that chapter uh, <laughs> for correctness. So, um, and I think it's, it is, the chapter represents one of the most important points in the book. So I'm, I'm grateful to you for bringing it up. That basically what I do is look at a lot of the uh, literature on domestic violence and gender-based violence and the ways in which that cycle of domestic violence uh, are theorized. That basically, oftentimes, first of all, you just have to be aware of uh, cultural norms, uh, gender scripts that we that we're all familiar with and often raised in, and that influence our everyday interactions, and that we repeat because we've seen them repeated in our families, in our institutions, in our films, in our uh, advertisements, in our social media. Um, so it's almost impossible for us to avoid some of these um, gender impositions uh, of our of our culture. So that's one piece of that domestic violence cycle. And an, another piece is um, that there are all sorts of reasons for which someone cannot escape that cycle. Um, if a person is being abused in a um, physical, emotional, intellectual way, um, and again, you and I talked earlier in this hour about um, violence on the body and how that can be manifested, um, then many times it's really difficult for that person to leave that setting. There might be financial implications. There might be um, other people who are counting on the person staying in that situation. Um, there might be fear of reprisal. So particularly for graduate students, it might be that, oh gosh, if I'm, if I am outspoken on the X, Y, or Z point, Will I, will I be able to actually get a job down the line, especially in a um, more precarious um, or a work environment full of certain precarities? Um, and let's see where I was going with that. The, uh, oh, right. So the cycle. So that's another point in the cycle. And then one of the things I talk about in Chapter 6 is that in the domestic violence literature, there's much conversation about how Victims of domestic violence often speed the cycle of abuse because they want to get it over with. So they know that something is brewing again, and so they just um, accelerate to get the, whatever the violent event is going to be. They want to get it over with. And I think that this can uh, translate in the academic sphere as um, people who sort of perform their own discrimination, let's put it that way. And so an example I'll give is, if if you just know you're going to a meeting and someone's going to say something gender to you um, that will sort of set the tone for the meeting and make the meeting less successful in the outcomes that are possible, maybe you'll start the meeting by saying whatever that thing is yourself because you just want to get it over with <laughs> and you'd rather say it than have somebody else say it. 
um, or if it's a, a raced comment or uh, a comment about someone's national origin or religion, uh, the individual, her or himself, might just decide, all right, let me just say this and get it over with. And I think that's um, that speeds the cycle and also sort of um, is complicit in the cycle. And that it's it's one of the sadder elements of both the cycle of domestic violence and the cycle of uh, discrimination and harassment in the workplace. So one of the terms you use in gender shrapnel that um, for whatever reason kind of really jumped out, jumped off the page at me was the notion of uh, political nothingness. Uh, so right. I don't know if you want to go into that because my question around political nothingness is, do you think uh, political nothingness uh, has become is it a norm or is it something that is now becoming uh, not the norm? Are we fighting against that? Mm -hmm. We're seeing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Cause as soon as you say it, I think about all the things um, that have become so prevalent in the news that make what may have appeared to be a year or two years ago, nothing. And now is a real movement or a real uh, movement towards change. Right. Um, so I'm thinking specifically about black lives matter where um, there may have been a sense um, that, that very unfortunately black lives were invisible. And then the, the question of black lives becoming all too visible um, in certain arenas, like incarceration, like um, violence, from, you know, by uh, affected by police forces, et cetera. So you're right. Like it ends up becoming a really interesting term because of the question of visibility and invisibility and what types of visibility you actually want. Right. Like we don't we don't want um, dead or injured bodies to be what become more visible. Um, but I but the political nothingness, I talked about that a lot in the in Chapter seven, which was on emotion and silence and shutting up. And um, really, I was thinking, and this goes to my cultural studies background, my Hispanic studies background, I was thinking about the verb used in Spanish, ningunear, which is literally to nobody somebody, <laughs> to make a, a, a nobody out of a somebody. And that, uh, that really the last thing we want to be doing is to be imposing silence or inviting shutting up because a person doesn't feel at liberty to speak in the workplace. And really, you know, I want this to be applying to students and to employees of every kind in the, in the academic workplace. And um, so as soon as we decide it's okay to silence somebody, we're sort of saying it's okay to make a nobody out of that somebody. And I think that still happens. Um, but I, I think the point you're making about, has that changed a little bit, that political nothingness can really become something? I think the answer to that absolutely has to be yes, or else we would not be creating political movements, having political platforms, having an idea that we want to vote for a certain candidate, having an opinion and believing that our opinion might affect some change, writing books, right? We have to believe that um, that if somebody was made a nobody, they can return to being a full somebody again. Uh, that's that's the sort of optimistic piece of activism, I believe. Um, I one thing occurred to me. I, I right now I I started about 
five or six weeks ago a gender shrapnel blog, so I'm trying to apply gender shrapnel concepts to the news that's swirling around us, um, mostly nationally and sometimes internationally. I, I've been thinking a lot about um, political nothingness when, as I think about um, Hillary Clinton's candidacy, that basically... I feel like she has to start at point zero every time she is in a press conference or in a debate or in an interview um, because she has to <laughs> she has to constantly reascertain her her existence right and sometimes she's starting from beyond nothingness from a negative, having to get herself just back to that point zero again um, as all the same questions come up and she's um, you know, I'm thinking even about the Matt Lauer interview from uh, a couple of days ago. So I, so I do think the political nothingness, like the calculus of that, how are we looking at um, numbers uh, or quantities or fullness of existence? Uh, I think these questions still really matter. Yeah, I agree. And uh, transitions perfectly into my next question, uh, which also has some linkages to the upcoming presidential election. Uh, Donald Trump uses uh, the phrase politically correct quite a bunch. And you write mm-hmm. an entire right. chapter on, uh, you know, is it what is politi- political correctness? Uh and is that the kind of term we should be using for what we're trying to accomplish or should it be something else? So do you want to kind of speak mm-hmm. to uh, what relationship uh, pl- kind of the movement, kind of the backlash against political correctness, we could say, uh, and mm-hmm. how that intersects mm-hmm. with gender shrapnel? Right. So I think uh, most people who think about political, political correctness um really are thinking about it vis-a-vis identity politics, right? And so if we think about identity politics, when we are grouping ourselves together um, in a certain type of identity um, and saying we are this and we are trying to affect change, which of course there's always nuance in those groups and other intersections, et cetera, but we are identifying at this moment as this for a platform for change, right? Then I think that... Um, that link can often feel threatening to others where um, the group is identifying a certain way and they're insisting on a certain type of political response and that that's where that politically correct can come in. Because I teach language, write about language, teach literature and teach um, cultural studies, I'm, you know, of course, always thinking about language. I think language really matters. Um, it's part of why I write so much about silence as well, right? Because silence is really um, the absence of spoken language or written language. Um, so the terms we use, I think, really matter. One of the examples I give in that chapter is the N-word, right? So basically, political correctness, if you want to use that term, said it is not appropriate for certain groups of individuals uh, who speak English to be using the N-word, right? Um, And here are all the reasons for which that is the case. And I think that is true. I think I should not be using the N-word. You can hear me not using it right now. Um, Although, of course, even uh, gesturing towards it is saying it exists in the world, right? Um, And one of the things I say in, in that chapter is that I don't think we've had in the gender arena any type of reckoning with the words we use. I think 
not only are um, some of the negative words we use still used, but um, I think used sometimes even more, and that we don't maybe have the same consciousness surrounding um, uh, a certain respect for women's status in the world when we think about language. And the example I give is the word bitch, which I am saying as bitch, not the B word. Um, <laughs> and that's because it's okay to say this word. And in my mind, too, I'm still sort of... Um, in, um, culturally inculcated to think that this word is is okay to say on air, right? But I think the word is deeply problematic for for many reasons, um, and at the same time, we're not nearly as active surrounding this gendered language we use every day. In terms of, I, I do, I'm really sensitive to some of the First Amendment folks who say, well, we can't control language. One of the hallmarks of the United States, um, the legal system, the government, and the culture is that we can say things and other thing, other people can say something completely opposite and it's all out there. And I think that's true, except that um, I actually, um, Laura Nielsen wrote a book on street harassment that talks about when language actually is harming or threatening or violent. Um, and that um, violent language um, can lead to a limitation of our movement in space. And um, I, I, so I, I do, I go to that a little bit when I think about politically correct, that sometimes it's okay to say, um, I feel threatened by the use of that language and, uh, or the semiotic, say, um, a cross burned in my yard or something like that, right? Um, and so I, I see a real tension in the way we use the term politically correct, at the same time, what I advocate for in that chapter is a movement towards the term cultural competence, um, which I think I, I cite Dennis Poole there, um, because because basically politically correct is so loaded. You know, you ask the question attaching the term to Donald Trump, that immediately makes it a loaded question. Um, but if we move away from that and towards a, a sense of cultural competence, what do we know about our own culture? Um, how can we critique our own culture? What do we learn about other cultures? And how does that make us more aware of the terms people would like us to use when we are describing certain groups? So that's mostly where I end up in that chapter. So um, would you like to speak about kind of uh, looking more at recent news stories about the uh, University of Chicago kind of coming out, uh, for the lack of a better phrasing, coming out against political correctness, being uh, writing that formal letter, uh, kind of decrying uh, trigger warnings and safe spaces in the name of academic freedom. So you touched a little bit on the First Amendment, but when it comes to academia, there's always seems to be this struggle between uh, kind of being culturally competent, but also academic freedom, or at least that's how it's penned. Right, right. The trigger warning issue has been so interesting, I think. And a lot of my friends who are not in academia have been asking me how I've been handling that. And mostly the way I've been handling that is listening and watching because I don't know yet what the correct answer is. What I do think is that this is a really simplistic answer to a really great question you're asking, so I apologize. But I do think that a well-written and thorough syllabus that 
tells the students what they will be covering in the class, right, might be trigger warning enough and also protect academic freedom. So there are, certainly there are things, for example, not only on something as obvious as a an intro to women's and gender studies and feminist theories syllabus, but also in basically any course that has us discussing things that affect us all, right? And hopefully that's part of what the the academic experience is about. Um, but but so I would think that basically on some of the syllabi I have, there could be really difficult topics like violence, like silencing, uh, like um, gender-based violence, like domestic abuse, et cetera, et cetera, like rape and sexual assault, that a student might say, oh, whoa, that's going to be really difficult for me to just sit and listen to that. And so what I would hope is that a student might, um, her or his first year, say, gosh, I I cannot manage that. I'm not taking that class. There is another class I can take for that requirement, right? Without, without my saying I have to change the syllabus or come, or not discuss certain things that we really need to be discussing in our classes. Um, and then maybe that student after a year in the university can say, gosh, next year I'm ready for that. I'm ready for, for that discussion. Um, so that's my simplistic answer that, uh, uh, you know, a thorough, clear, transparent, well-written syllabus might allow students to make their own decisions and then maybe come back to, to, to where you are on that with, with your own sense of autonomy and academic freedom. So uh, I don't know if this is completely backtracking, but I did want to uh, go back to your, you talked a lot about kind of the learned silence and silence being a heavy component to gender shrapnel. Do you think there's a link between learned silence or silence itself uh, and kind of the backlash against political correctness? Or do you think those are two separate entities? I don't think I I don't think I have yet thought about those together, but I think it's a really uh, wonderful question. Yeah. So basically, a learned silence at saying, <laughs> "Yeah, you're right." Yes, I'm thinking through this as I speak. I do. I think there is a link. Um, in, in other words, when we're saying that there are um, certain terms we should or shouldn't be using, or gosh, I'm afraid to say anything because I don't even know what the accepted term is at this point, right? Um, that maybe there's a certain fear and a silence that results from that that probably isn't what we want. Um, one of, I, I you know, I, one of the things I, I say um, is that I am a white woman of relative privilege. And I have to acknowledge that as I'm writing and speaking about these issues, um, and also make sure that I'm not speaking for others or in, in a way that would have a negative impact on others who are in different, um, differently identified groups. And, um, you know, my, mostly what I try to do is, um, read copiously. And when I have enough confianza, which is the word used in Spanish, enough of an intimate relationship with someone where I feel comfortable asking them, um, what's your preferred term if I'm going to refer to X, Y, or Z and kind of be, be attentive to those things. But I think you're, the question you're asking is a really good extension of gender shrapnel when we think about 
um, maybe being afraid to have some of these tough conversations because we don't even know which terms to use. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking when kind of wrestling with those two terms. Um, because I think what you're uh, touching on, if not explicitly coming out and saying is, um, a lot of kind of what goes into gender shrapnel and all these kind of cycles of harassment and all these, uh, kind of meta level, uh, machinations is fear. There's a lot of fear that goes Mm -hmm. into all of these things. Uh, so I don't know if you wanted to, uh, talk a little bit about, um, kind of what role fear has in, in gender shrapnel. I will. And that's, um, that, that appears, and I, sorry to keep referring to the chapters, but that, as you can tell, that's kind of how I think about the structure of the book. Um, the, the fear question appears in chapter seven and again in chapter 13. So I'm basically trying to theorize it in seven and to come up with practical solutions in chapter 13. And one of the things I say is, and, and this cites many other researchers like, um, Kramer and Amabile. And so I want to make sure as I speak that, um, that everyone knows that, of course, gender shrapnel is, um, it owes a debt of gratitude to many other researchers. Um, but I think one of the, one of the things I like to point out is that we like to pretend that the workplace is an objective place, right? So we put on our suits or we put on whatever outfit we're wearing that might not be what we wear on a Saturday morning in our own homes. Um, there are different protocols. We have email protocols. Um, there are certain ways we go to meetings and write memos, right? So there, um, there is a cultural system at play in the workplace. And yet it's not an objective place. Each of us brings our own bundle of emotions every single day to the workplace. And whether those emotions are manifesting in uh, an email reply all chain or just on someone's face as they roll their eyes in a meeting, <laughs> our bundles of emotions are there. And I think we, we do better when we acknowledge that that's just the case, right? That we don't somehow become robots the second we walk into the door. And one of those emotions, of course, is fear when you have hierarchical systems um, whereby certain employees either have significantly less power so you mentioned earlier graduate students sort of being low on the chain. Same thing with adjunct or part-time employees, um, that there's a fear of um, certain types of reprisals that can have to do with teaching assignments, with um, having enough teaching assignments to make it to the end of the month. Um, there can be a fear of what it what you'll be teaching and how that does or doesn't complement the research you're doing, right? So... Um, I, I think that if you have experienced some form of discrimination or harassment, um, the, the real fear is that there will be retaliation uh, that gets right at the core of, of what you do. And that is the case. That is why retaliation law is actually, I believe most legal scholars would say, stronger than uh, discrimination and harassment law because they're trying to protect against that. But but another point that's so important is that in the end, it is really hard to go up against institutional system complaint systems um, and to expect that they will do right by the person who enters into that system and even harder 
to, to take the complaint beyond the institutional setting. And so I think there's a fear in reporting. And then, of course, there's a fear in not reporting and just uh, keeping the status quo. And, uh, and I, there are all sorts of other ways I think people can speak about and manifest fear. But I think those are a couple of examples. So kind of transitioning to uh, the solutions part of your book. Uh, I was really mm-hmm. interested in, uh, you used the phrase tempered radicalism. So do you mm-hmm. want to go into uh, exactly what you mean by that and how it can be useful in this setting? Sure. Um, this, uh, I, I actually refer to that term right away in section one and then come back and basically base a whole chapter, chapter 12 on it because I was so taken with an article written by Deborah Myers and Scully and, um, what they say, and they're talking about the institutional setting, but it works. Um, they extrapolate to basically any sort of organizational management take on, uh, a workplace. And what they say is that, uh, and uh, what I also love in their article, they're really sort of parsing the words tempered and radicalism. Um, but they're saying that there are those of us who have outside of the workplace a certain set of beliefs about the world, beliefs in terms of our, you know, political leanings and ideologies, um, beliefs about the way we identify and, and how we treat others. And that, of course, we bring those those um, those sets of beliefs, which we could call our own individual cultures, into the workplace, and so do all of our, our colleagues. And um, they say that basically there's a way organizationally to harness those different beliefs, to allow them to exist, and to... Um, to temper them in a way, right? So um, it might it might be that you are really active and activist in one segment of your life outside of the workplace, and that you're not uh, you're not as active or activist in the workplace. But these are things you still you know profoundly believe. Um, so uh, Myers and Scully are saying, good, bring them into the workplace and let's see how they stack up with everybody else, and then we can make an informed decision about maintaining status quo or affecting change based on that, right? Um, and so I'm trying to think of a specific example I can give that uh, makes sense there. Um, you know, one of the narratives I tell in um, Chapter 3 is that a student affairs dean is very active in Black Lives Matter outside of the classroom, I'm sorry, outside of the university and inside the university works with multicultural student groups, um, tries to help with um, recruitment and retention in uh, uh, multicultural student groups, um, but then is taken to task for her involvement in Black Lives Matter outside of the university, right? So people perceive her as more radical inside the university than she actually is, and that there are ways to temper that and ways to... um, uh, embrace all the good things that are happening and to stack those up against um, needs and desires of other groups in the institution. So uh, do you see, are there any drawbacks to tempered radicalism? The, um, yes. <laughs> and I, I write about those that um, Myers and Scully also say that what what sometimes ends up happening in this case is that the, those individuals who choose to temper their ideologies and beliefs inside academia specifically, um, 
uh, sometimes become the ones who are always listened to or always become the voice of a certain group, where those who maintain a certain set of grassroots activism inside the university, the, the same type of activism they might practice outside, become sort of the um, the out there radicals, right? And I think the danger is that you can sometimes lose those voices and you can sometimes create your own stagnant status quo about who is listened to and who isn't. And that goes a little bit to what I talk about in Chapter 13, where um, that small wins approach that has been adopted by so many workplaces, um, where you're just trying every day to make little change that will add up to big change, which is a great way to operate, but that sometimes you actually, sometimes it's really good to affect big change. (laughs) And sometimes that means you're listening to those um, individuals who haven't tempered their radicalism. In other words, that too also needs some kind of balance where um, you have to not be afraid of some of the bigger changes too. Right. Um, I was thinking a lot about when you uh, kind of lay out the different narratives, how big of a role uh, regionality or like the region of the institution Mm -hmm. has to do with Mm -hmm. these small wins. Uh, Because you talk at length about um, how different, concepts of like the Southern gentleman at like Southern universities Mm -hmm. has a lot to do with kind of the gender shrapnel that occurs. So I guess my very loaded question or very complicated question (laughs) is, so you have a bunch of academics come into an institution that may not be from that region. So how do you Mm -hmm. kind of bridge those gaps in order to create a culture that uh, kind of accrues those small wins. Right. Yeah. Really complicated question. And, you know, one of the, one of my concerns as I wrote gender shrapnel was, okay, I've been for years and years at a Southern institution and that informs the way I'm narrating gender shrapnel and even narrating others stories of gender shrapnel. Right. Cause you know, you've been decades at a place and and that has an effect on you and the way you write about some of these phenomena. Um, And yet I must say that the whole time I I wrote Gender Shrapnel and now with the Gender Shrapnel blog, it's so interesting because I do think that these regional differences really matter. But I also, I feel like I see all of these Gender Shrapnel phenomena played out on our national stage every day. Um, And so in the end, there are regional differences that I think we need to be aware of and attentive to. And at the same time, I think there are some core phenomena that are the same every day, everywhere in the United States, right? So there's some takeaways that I think can just be universally accepted and then others need more nuance. Um, One, I I guess um, part of what you're asking goes to... um, a sense of like the carpetbagger, right? So you have people not from an area who come in and sort of occupy a work, you know, occupy a work position in um, that new area or new region. And um, does that person understand the the cultural norms of um, the workplace because of where it's located and of the, the community, the surrounding community? And I would say that's a really important question. Um, one that I am not so sure many colleges and universities do a good job with, right? With their students who are coming from all over and with 
um, the employees, some of whom are from the local setting and some of whom are from far, far away. Um, I do think when you log more and more time at a place, you become more and more a part of that community and probably are developing your cultural competence uh, surrounding some of those comparisons and that that's a really good thing and that it should be brought to the table. Um, some of the things I point to in terms of my own institution um, that really is quite Southern in, um, in nature. And I went to, I actually have now lived half of my life in the South, even though I'm from Philadelphia. Um, and I went to university of Virginia for, as an undergrad. Um, I remember uh, my first day uh, planning to go to a football game with some friends and everybody was dressing up and I'm from the North and you don't dress up for football games. <laughs> and I, I just remember that striking me as so different, so amazingly different and that it then had bigger and greater resonances across campus in other ways for me through those four years. I would say probably we all have that when we go to another place, um, a certain sense of culture shock um, and that like when we go to study abroad, probably a month later, <laughs> we've come to terms with it and started to even incorporate some of the things we're learning there. Um, one of the issues I bring up as I, I used to think this was really a Southern cultural issue, and now I'm not positive, but it's the question of civility, which um, I mostly hear talked about at institutions in the South, and these include University of Virginia and the institution where I work in Virginia. Um, and civility isn't something I always hear as a very common notion in mission statements of Northern universities, let's say. So maybe this can be an example I can give that gives a regional difference. And the, the way I see civility linked to honor um, is, I see it as problematic, right? That if you're imposing certain um, norms of honor, no cheating, no stealing, um, no lying, right? But that sexual assault is not included <laughs> on that list or isn't considered a lying, cheating, or stealing, that seems to me to be really problematic. And then when you, and you're, so your question is really complicated because when I layer in civility with that, sometimes civility means we don't air dirty laundry, right? Civility might mean publicly we are treating each other always in a genteel, um, upbeat way that says we are not going to go there. We're not going to address the negative things that are happening. And um, I, I see those items as intimately linked with the concept of gender shrapnel. Yeah. So we've taken a lot of your time today. So I have one final question for you. Uh, if people listen to this and they're really taken by our conversation around gender shrapnel, uh, beyond uh, the book itself, do you have like three other books that you would recommend that people would go check out if they want to learn more about uh, this sort of phenomenon? Well, I actually, yes, for sure. Um, I mentioned particularly when I was talking about um, my own intersectionality or lack thereof, um, and I talk about that in Chapter 1, I am also recommending um, to others some some key works that might address some things that I don't specific that I can't let's say personally address because I haven't experienced them so some of those works that I talk about right off the bat are um, 
the book that's called Presumed Incompetent, The Intersections of Race and Class for Women in Academia. And that's a really um, sort of hefty co-edited volume that came out um, by Utah State University Press a few years ago. Uh, I highly recommend it. It has a great uh, set of uh, articles from just a, a broad variety of spectra across the United States. Um, another one I would highly recommend came out of Columbia uh, three years ago, and that's, um, and, and again, another co-edited volume, which uh, I have something to say about that too, but it's called Mothers in Academia. I think it's, it's edited by um, Castaneda and Iskro. And one thing I find really interesting is that most university presses are not very interested in co-edited, co-edited volumes at this point. But one real advantage of co-edited volumes is just the variety of voices. Um, so it, uh, it addresses some of those intersectional issues that I was talking about earlier in the program. Um, and then also, of course, uh, looking at Kimberly Crenshaw and the, the whole concept of intersectionality seems to make some sense. Um, and uh, also there, there have been several books that have come out specifically about microaggressions in the last couple of years. Um, and so uh, Derek Wing Sue, I feel like it might have been in 2010, wrote a, a really excellent uh, work on microaggressions in the workplace. So these would be some, some good recommendations beyond what I've written. Well, thank you for those recommendations. And uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. And thanks for joining the New Books Network. Thank you so much for the excellent questions and conversation. I really appreciate it.